This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. This is the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and I share their story. They may have overcome some kind of adversity, they might still be very much on that journey, but with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel that little bit inspired. Today on the podcast, a woman who brought the importance of looking after our mental health to our attention at the time when we needed it the most. Dr. Julie Smith is a clinical psychologist, blogger, online educator, and since 2019, a TikTok phenomenon. Formerly working for the NHS with over 10 years experience, Dr. Julie has been guiding her clients to understand and manage their mental health in her clinic in Hampshire. But now with the impact of social media being greater than ever during the pandemic, Dr. Julie now has a social media following of over 3.5 million and counting. Dr. Julie was the first mental health professional to start using TikTok as a platform for therapy. And as fans have scooped up her unending knowledge and insight about the human mind, Dr. Julie has now given us the gift of a brand new book. Why has nobody told me this before? It was released on January the 6th and I cannot wait to hear all about it. Welcome to the pod, Dr. Julie. <laughs> it's so exciting to, to even be speaking to you actually because it's, you know, this whole thing is called Extraordinary People. But actually, as I've been talking to friends and family about yeah, I'm going on Katie Piper's uh, podcast, they all say, oh, wow, she's so inspiring. So, you know, it feels like you're the extraordinary person in this interview, but <laughs> we'll go with it. <laughs> No, I mean, you've done some extraordinary things um, and you are you are very extraordinary. Um, and I think before I actually ask you any questions, I should start by saying not just congratulations, but I think also thank you because you've helped a lot of people through the pandemic. Your content is free um, and people's mental health problems haven't stopped just because things are easing off. You know, it's very much ongoing for people. And I think helping that many people, you know, you wouldn't have had those platforms and that reach, particularly when your work was restricted as well. You know, you had to, uh, you know, go by the rules. You weren't always able to see clients. So you've been able to give people access to these tips, these tricks. And I was wondering, do you feel really proud with how far you've come with it all? Yeah, I think, um, well, up until recently, it's all been a bit of a whirlwind. I've, I've just been keeping my head down, doing the work, trying to get as much content out there as possible for people and responding to messages in terms of what people were asking for um, and trying to be a mum at the same time and, and have some degree of 
balance, although it feels a bit like a tightrope, that kind of balance, doesn't it? But um, uh, it, it was only since the the book came out um, that um, I, we just sort of stopped for a minute and thought, wow, we, we did it. You know, that was the sort of end point that we had that just, just get this book out there into the world. And um, so now I'm sort of just in this weird numb place where I'm kind of, wow, I got to the end of that one. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it, to reflect and pause and, and be con- self self congratulate as well when you've been working hard. Yeah, I think you get so into the groove of of just just working and doing the next thing and doing the next thing, and um, it's almost like I don't know if you're like climbing a mountain, you get to a certain point and you can you can stop suddenly and you get to see how far you've come, the view, and and you think, wow. Yes, actually, I've come further than I thought because I had my head down looking at each step in front of me and um, here we are. I didn't say who I was interviewing today on the pod, but I told my followers that I'd be talking to somebody with, with your in your profession, with your background, and they always get really excited about that because I think it is a very confidential, closed profession for, for obvious reasons. And lots of people want to access having a therapist, but there are different barriers for different people. So I thought we should start at the beginning, really, because I've, you know, I've had a lot of help from psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, alternative therapies, various well-being. You know, I've, I've done everything, <laughs> and, lo- and lots of it has been really effective and, and worked. And I was thinking back of when you first start looking for somebody. I remember going on like counselling directory and looking, and like, oh, she's got a nice shirt on. Oh, I, yeah, she <laughs> looks good. I like her hair. And I, it's like, how do you pick a psychologist? This is so difficult. And I think it is a minefield for people to know where to go, um, to know who to see. For some people, it's not accessible financially. It can be really expensive. So could we start by telling the listeners, what role does a clinical psychologist play? How is it different to a psychiatrist, a counsellor? Sure. It's it's quite a common question, actually. And and partly because we just don't get told that kind of thing, do we? We don't sort of really understand. Um, So the pathway for um, a psychologist is that you you do a psychology degree to begin with, and then you work within sort of mental health for a few years, getting some experience, and and then you apply to do um, a doctorate in clinical psychology. So within that, you learn um, you're, you're you're partly doing. Um, something that reflects a PhD. So you do research in, in psychology and you learn how to scrutinize the research and the evidence. Um, but then you're also learning on the job. So you you have placements in the NHS and you're learning how to provide therapy and work um, in services. So then you offer talking therapies. So all different, you can have the chance to learn lots of different psychological therapies during your training and you can keep going once you qualify. And lots of people do, you know, they really sort of broaden their horizons because there are lots of different therapies available. And um, so if you're going to see a clinical psychologist, they would generally offer you talking therapies. Um, uh, And and a counsellor is slightly different and it's, it's still... Uh, you know, talking therapies, um, but the training pathway is different. So um, you, you can train uh, as a, as a counsellor. I think, you know, depending on how, whether you do it part-time or full-time, you can do sort of night courses and things like that. And they teach you really how to be with a person therapeutically and um, how to sort of respond to them. And, and you can then go on and learn other therapies from that point. Um, And for a psychiatrist, they're generally a medical doctor first. So they study medicine and then once they qualify, they choose to go into um, mental health. So really their role is much more based around assessment, diagnosis and prescribing of medication. Although 
a fair few of them do um, sort of train in one or two therapies. One of the things that fascinates me is your client base is so varied. You know, you have people from all walks of life. So what I'd love to know is, is mental health something that aligns us all as humans? So are we essentially, in fact, all the same? Uh, yeah, I think, um, and, I, and I think that's what's happening with this, this big conversation that's happening around mental health, is is there's this shift towards um, aligning it with our physical health, that um, while they are not the same thing, they are woven together like like weaves in a basket you can't really tear them apart they're part of the same experience and you know if your physical health is poor then your mental health will suffer and if your mental health is poor your physical health suffers they they impact on each other they influence each other and they're part of that experience that we have and but before there was this intolerance of any ill health when it came to our minds and our emotions and the more that people start to talk about it publicly, there's this shift where everybody feels, oh, okay, it's okay not to not to be okay and to then do something about it in the same way that it is with your physical health. You know, it's not seen as embarrassing that you might have a GP appointment to check up on something. And it's not seen as embarrassing that you go to the gym to stay physically healthy. It's it's normal because that's a human need. Um, so I guess it's a, a bit of a dream of mine that one day it would be okay and just as normal to say, I can't make it, I've got an appointment with my therapist, as it is to say, can't make it, I've got mm. an appointment with my GP, um, because they're both a part of our health. Yeah, because I think like, I'm 38, so I was, I was born in 83, and I'm thinking when I was really young, I um, this may be wrong to have seen it this way, but therapy for me was something that would be never spoken about possibly seem like failure if you were a child it'd be a failure on your parents that the child would be in therapy and it would be two outcomes you would go to a therapist to find out you were okay and you weren't crazy or you would go to be sectioned and you know as as a woman it, you would fear if you had therapy and told people would you not be promoted at work would you not be seen as somebody that could lead a team that was able and capable if you were a mother would you have your children taken away from you would you be seen as not capable to care for them and like fast forward to now it, it's completely different and then when we think about social media, it used to be such a, a private, and it, it still is a private profession, but it never ha was on social media. It never had a home on social media. And now there's lots of different people sharing brilliant techniques, quotes, videos, exercises, lives. And we're on social media all the time and we're consuming some stuff that's really bad for us. So, you know, what a great balance to finally get some content that's really good for us that a lot of people couldn't afford to pay for you know if it wasn't there for free on social they just wouldn't be accessing this stuff and I think your videos in particular you know some videos can be really corporate and really boring and really dull and I find your content very Moorish you know like <laughs> I don't want to stop watching it but they're also genuinely really helpful you know they're really practical solutions to things that most of us do feel on a daily basis and I wondered how long had you been a clinical psychologist before you started posting on, on TikTok and on social media? Sure. So um, I qualified in 2010, I think it was. And, um, uh, you know, I worked in the NHS for a number of years. And then once I had uh, children, I, I realised I needed to sort of balance things out a bit more. So then I was just running a very small sort of one-man band private practice from home and, and managing it around school hours and things like that. And, and it was during that time, really, that I had all these people coming through for therapy that 
they didn't necessarily need long-term in-depth therapy because once they had the educational aspect of therapy, so learning a bit about how their mind works and um, you know how to influence how they feel and their moods and stuff like that, then those people found that so empowering because they were ready to uh, face whatever life threw at them. They felt this this confidence that they could manage their mental health, and and they were sort of raring to go then. And and you know, I mean, the, the title of the book. It, is really uh, an amalgamation of what lots of people used to give me some sort of variation of, why on earth has nobody told me this before? Um, this is really helping. It's not rocket science. It's it's life skills, but it's making a difference. And I feel so much more able to face life. Um, so then I mm-hmm. would sort of um, harp on at home to my husband saying, yes, you know, people shouldn't have to pay to come and see people like me to find out that that part of it. You know, I can't give therapy to everybody individually, but there's this educational stuff that is really, really powerful. And um, so he sort of, you know, turned that on me and said, well, go on then, make it available, you know, put something on YouTube <laughs> or something. So, oh God, okay, here we go. So we started to make a couple of YouTube videos and things. And at the same time, he discovered TikTok, which seemed, we, we loved it. It was it was full of comedy and dancing and all these fun things. Um and there were lots of young people on there expressing their distress, but no mental health professionals sort of responding to any of it or, or giving advice or education. So he had this bright idea of, well, why don't you just make bite-sized information and stick it on there and see what happens? And um, my initial response was, no way, I will be trolled out of there and it will be, you know, be awful. But actually, you know, the opposite happened very quickly. That was November 2019. So that was sort of the month before we started to realise what was happening um, as COVID was sort of spreading across the world. And um, uh, so we started, and I think within about a month, by that Christmas, we had about 100,000 followers on there. Um, and, and I think we didn't realise, but people were really hungry for that sort of information, you know, the, the little snippets of, okay, this is how your mind works. So this is what you can do do to use it to your advantage um and yeah so that that was two years ago because I wondered why TikTok but I suppose it does make sense it's the youngest platform there's also lots of unhealthy trends around self-harm and things on that platform so I suppose it is the perfect place to put this kind of educational stuff at some point I realized you know I can sit in my therapy room um hiding away from the world and and seeing one person at a time and moaning about social media that I can't control or I could try and add something positive to the mix. You know, I could try and put something out there mm. that if someone is in distress and there were clearly lots of young people on there expressing their distress, that they would have some chance of coming across something that was decent evidence-based information as opposed to the misinformation that's out there. So, um, and, and I was petrified, you know, I thought, oh gosh, this is really kind of swimming against the tide. What are my colleagues going to think of me? And... Um, you know, other professionals, and there are people I know who are medical doctors or psychologists, um, teachers, they were probably the audience that I feared their reaction the most. And so... Mm. Um, what, have they reacted like then? Uh, well, do you know what, That that's probably been the most moving part for me in the last, especially in the last week since the book came out. I've had, I have messages from people in all those professions thanking me and saying, I'm so you know, grateful for what you've done for psychology, because again, it's been such a hidden 
um, hidden profession that has so much to offer. But there was this sort of, I think there was a, a fear of what if we say the wrong thing? So let's not say anything at all. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's just, it was really moving for me to have messages from, from people that um, some of them do know me, some of them don't, but they've just reached out to say, I'm going to be using a book with my patients. So for me, that's the ultimate validation that if a professional who's, you know, mm. um, well-educated in this area um, is going to be um, recommending it, then that means the world to me. I think the fact that you've written the book um, and the engagement that you get on your platforms, it, it shows the real need that, you know, the amount of people that need this content um, out there. And I think, you know, the pandemic has had this tragic effect on everybody's mental health in, in just in general. Um, and I wondered as a clinical psychologist yourself, you know, you're still working in clinic as well as being present on social media. What is your take on it all on this on this mental health pandemic? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a huge psychological fallout that is in the process of. I think it's just beginning to be honest. I think when people develop um, trauma or, or you know PTSD, then those things can take months to develop and really embed themselves. Um, again, grief for a lot of people. A lot of people are grieving family members and loved ones, but other people are also grieving livelihoods and, you know, businesses that have been built up over generations and um, financial security. And, and those things aren't to be um, sniffed at, you know, they, they, they matter and they, they change people's quality of life and they affect their mental health hugely. So, um, yeah, I think I think the psychological effects of it all are really kind of just beginning. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'd love to talk in more detail about the book because the book does feel like a, a good solution that could help a lot of people. Um, it's available to buy now. It's called Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? And I wondered when you wrote it, you know, because when you write a book, you write it for somebody, you write it for a demographic, an audience. Who would you say that the book is for? Well, in some ways, I, I wrote the book with an idea of of myself in mind. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, a book nerd. I've just got heaps of books and but I never really, not often anyway, read a book cover to cover. I like to dip in, look for the information I'm interested in at that point, and then dip out again. And and I think for anyone who's struggling, it can be really, really hard to read a book cover to cover. You know, you just want to know, what can I do? What can I do now? And I've I made a point not to split the book into clinical diagnoses as well, because it's a book for everyone who experiences the ups and downs of life. I think there's this idea that you have to have some sort of clinical diagnosis to 
um, to then get help or support or to to work on yourself. And it's not true. You know, if you if you have everyone has low days or everyone has those days when they don't feel motivated, but they've got stuff they have to get done or everybody grieves at some point. Um, and, and everyone has sort of days when they maybe experience sort of emotional pain through, you know, relationship problems or stuff like that um, or high stress periods of their life. So I wanted people to be able to kind of dip in and dip out. So I've split it into those sorts of sections. So there's a section on stress, section on um, fear and anxiety, a section on motivation, on dark places, which is about mood, um, on self-doubt um, and grief and a meaningful life. So it's so that people can kind of take what, what they want to know and, and dip straight into that part. Mm, there's a really great bit that I like um, about the way we talk to ourselves and you talk about changing the way we speak to ourselves. And I feel like mostly the the brain will naturally think, in, like, I class myself as a positive person, but even me, I naturally think in a negative way. And I, I wondered what is the science behind this? You know, have we learned to speak to ourselves in this way? And can we undo this learning and become a more positive person? What, what's the kind of theory behind this? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a life practice, but it can be changed. And, and you know, some of the um, research that has most impacted me personally and that has really stuck with me um, is, is that if you hear, let's say you hear um a bully constantly criticizing you, verbally attacking you, the changes that that causes in the brain, uh, we, we, we know the impact that that has. But if that same voice, if that same self attack, you know, that same sort of verbal attack and criticism is coming from inside your own head, it has the same impact mm. on your brain chemistry. So, you know, if that inner voice that we all have sounds more like a bully than a best friend, then it will undoubtedly be holding holding you back and it will have an impact on how you feel. So um, it's this idea that, you know, I don't know, this is kind of historical idea, isn't there, that um, we're respectful of other people, but it's okay to hammer yourself because you need to be better. And, and there is, you know, of course we all want to improve and things like that, but the best way to improve is to be your own coach rather than your own bully. And, you know, if you think about, okay, everybody wants to do their best. Well, let's take someone who does their best. Let's take an elite athlete. They don't hire the the high school bully to follow them around and and beat them up after they miss a shot or whatever. They they hire, they take great time and, and effort to find the right coach, someone that they know they can trust, someone that's always honest with them, but is always respectful and always has their back. So wants the absolute best for them. So there's this idea that actually... Mm-hmm you know, that helps. There's a reason that they do that, right? And so um, Mm -hmm. if we can do that for ourselves, we're in a much better position to be able to um, cope with failure, to get back up after we fall and, and keep moving forward and also do the hard thing. So um, when I talk about kind of changing how you speak to yourself, I talk about the idea of self-compassion and being kind to yourself. And there's this misconception that self-compassion is about self-indulgence and just kind of um, letting yourself off the hook for everything and going for comfort. But actually self-compassion isn't really that. It's sometimes, most of the time, it's doing the hard thing. It's doing the thing that you know is in your best interests, but is really tough to do. So it's kind of like, um, let's say the day that your kids don't want to go to school, which might happen a lot. 
if you were, you know, if you were, every Monday, yeah. So self indulgence <laughs> would be okay. Let's stay at home. Let's let's not bother with today. You know, um, I'll let you off the hook. So you know, the compassion would be. Do you know what? I have your absolute best interest. I know this is the best thing for you and your future. So we're going to do the hard thing mm. and we're going to get ourselves there. And we'll be kind and respectful and supportive mm. along the way, but we're going to do what's best, even though it's the tough thing to do. Yeah. I'm so glad the book talks about it because I sometimes think you can read books and listen to podcasts and they encourage you to lean on friends, families, to create a support network. And a lot of people reading those books or listening to those podcasts might think, well, I don't have that. And that's why I feel this way. And that analogy of the coach and the athlete and that realization that, you can have your own back, you know, you can be your own coach in life and you can access all, all the literature and, and the podcasts and you can you can help yourself. You don't have to have a supportive parent, a partner, you know, lots of people aren't in the privileged position to, to have those networks. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can be the voice that you need to hear, then you're less dependent on, you know, it's good to have a support network, but but you can, you know, build that for yourself as well. And, and I think the thing is as well is not to expect yourself to do it perfectly. Um, you know, if we have a lifetime of habit of um, hammering ourselves with every mistake or always looking for our imperfections or things that we're getting wrong, then that's not going to go away overnight just because you decide to be, you know, kinder to yourself. Those critical thoughts will always arrive, but it's how we then respond to them. And, and is something I kind of, I think I've said this in a couple of videos is, you know, don't let those thoughts go unchecked. It's okay for them to arrive, but, but don't let them go unchecked. Always come back at it with something that's going to be more helpful to you. Um, so that you at least get the balance mm. and then you can also see a thought for what it is. So you can almost kind of say, oh, well, there's that critical voice. And we'll, I'll often do that with people in therapy. If they're struggling with self-criticism is when it comes out, you go, oh, there it is. There's the critical voice. And now what's the compassionate alternative? So that you just get into this habit of mm. noticing it for what it is, which is one perspective. It's not the facts about who you are as a person. It's one possible story or narrative about you. And then you can choose what the other option might be. So then in the very least, you've got I'm two options. I'm literally writing this down <laughs> as you say it. So. <laughs> It's great, isn't it? Because like you said, you've got those two options and I, I'm writing it down because in some situations I feel like there's no option and I'm wrong. You're, there's always two options, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's such a, I mean, it's been sort of spread about the internet quite a lot now, um, but it, it's because it's a truth as thoughts are not facts. You know, they're stories, they're ideas, they're memories. They're often the voice of someone from years ago um, that might not have been healthy. And we internalize that as our own voice, you know? So um, if a, if a thought causes us distress, it makes sense to then challenge it and and try to get some perspective on it. And so something I do in the book is sort of list out common thought biases where normal thought patterns that we all do, but we do more of them when we're not feeling so good. And, and they present a bias to reality. So um, I think one that lots of people know about is catastrophizing. So if you feel anxious, your thoughts are more likely to go to the worst possible case scenario and play that out in your mind like a movie. And, and if you're mm. anxious all the time, then that's really unhelpful because it, it triggers more anxiety. But actually, that's also your brain trying to keep you safe because let's say you're in a situation that is not safe it makes sense to be really, really clear what the worst case scenario is here so that I can avoid it. 
Um, but if if it's um, a work situation where you're not under threat, but you're just, you know, maybe you've, you're feeling a bit anxious because you haven't slept well, let's say, or you've had too much coffee or whatever it is. And then and then once you feel that pounding heart, you kind of know that, oh gosh, I'm feeling anxious. Oh, and then the catastrophizing starts. So, um, you know, the catastrophe thought doesn't always come first. Sometimes it comes because you're feeling anxious. And then it helps to be able to n- notice those thought biases for what they are, which is a bias. So just simply, mm. simply noticing it and labeling it, there's the catastrophizing thoughts. That alone takes some of the power out of them because you're seeing them as one possible idea rather than because I've thought it, that means it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm writing my own book here. I'm writing all these notes down. This is so good. <laughs> it's just such great advice. I can I can see why you wrote a book because it's just so great to have all this in one place. And, it, you know, it's so helpful and it, and it complements what you do online. Um, I wondered if the actual process of writing the book was difficult because you're so knowledgeable, you're so experienced and you've got so much lived experience. And, and whilst you were writing this book, you, you must have been seeing people face to face and having patience. Was it difficult to, to cram it in? Because people say, oh, a book, that's really long. But actually, when you're very passionate, experienced, you have to really edit and, and stick to, to deadlines, stick to word counts. Was that a hard process? Yeah, I mean, because I've never written a book before. And, um, you know, being a, a human as I am, the the fear and the, you know, the anxiety that came with doing something for the first time um, was was huge. The bit I love is the research. So I'm a real psychology nerd and I will just read and read and read. And I loved updating myself, making sure all my kind of, the research was up to date and everything. Um, and then I would sort of four days in panic that I hadn't put any any words on the page because um, that was I realised <laughs> that was a bit I was avoiding right because gosh you know I, I've got to do it badly first which is anxiety provoking um, and so the process it was a it was a massive learning experience for me and I I read a lot about writing actually along the way because I obviously wanted to translate all the the sort of quite academic stuff into something that that was relatable and made sense to all of us. Um, Because I sometimes get frustrated myself with, you know, academic writing and how it sort of hides really useful information in the really complex language. Um, So it's sort of pulling threads out of a big kind of yarn and and working out, okay, what's what's the most important thread here? And how can we make it really simple? In the book, you give so much advice on such a wide variety of things. It, it, it's so it's so brilliant. Anyone listening who hasn't read the book, I would urge you to go and check it out because it's, it's such a fantastic insight. But I wondered, do you take your own advice? Yes, although... Um given the the last two years of, um, you know, suddenly having to produce, I think it's 80,000 words in about five months. Um, and, and then we went into lockdown. So we had three children at home full time as well. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and also this idea of kind of social media where, um, I had the chance to write this book for them, but, you know, if, if you're not on social media, then it's sort of, switches off, you know, and, and in order to keep engaging the audience that I had, I had to keep producing content. Um, but I also wanted to be present for my children during this global pandemic. And so there was this time, you know, during the last couple of years where it was, was really tough, actually. We, I've worked probably harder in the last two years than I ever have in my life. And um, and so the first things to, to slide are things that help, you know, it's the, uh, the exercise, isn't it? And, um, the, mm-hmm. the, the social life and even calls to friends, you know, and, uh, it's those sorts of things that end up slipping because you, 
you, any spare minute you have, you want to be present as a parent. So, um, yeah, absolutely. There are, there are times when I've, um, had to kind of give myself a bit of a talking to and say, well, you've got to remember to practice what you preach. But I think in some ways that's a, that's a really important part of, I try really hard to, to remind people online that just because you kind of you know, read all the books or, um, you've got this training, it doesn't mean you get a problem free life. You know, life is really hard Mm. no matter what. And, and the book is really a a set of tools that help us to get through that. So, um, you know, certainly in the last couple of years, it's been, I mean, I've not had it as, as tough as, you know, a lot of people. Um, but when things got, got tough and I realized I was slipping on a lot of kind of self-care behaviors, I had to remind myself, right, you got to practice what you preach. You got to get back on and and look after yourself. Otherwise, you just can't sustain it. You, you touched there about being a parent. Um, I've got kids too, and a lot of people that listen to this podcast are parents. And it's been a huge subject that the mental health of our children, with the schools opening and closing, play dates not being allowed. What would be your top line for the best way to deal with our children's mental health? Top line is 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 listen and be present, you know, be, be ready to listen without judgment about someone's experience, no matter what their age. Um, and, and be aware that children of a, you know, at a certain age won't necessarily have the words to describe the fact that they're struggling. It will come out in behavior. So it's, it's stepping back to, you know, observe, well, that, which is so easy to say, isn't it? So difficult in the moment when, you know, if your if your child is, is not behaving in, in a certain way and, um, but it's, yeah, it's being able to step back and, and recognise that actually a lot of these children ha- have gone through this pandemic without being at a stage of development where they're able to understand it. And this sense of responsibility, I think, is huge, where you're not only looking after yourself, you're apparently responsible for everybody else's health, which is awful, right? Because you're... Mm. Um, of course you care for all your loved ones and it's that this idea that you're somehow responsible for for their health and their safety which you can't fully control no matter how much you test or stay you know um anti-back and everything else you can't fully control that so suddenly you're given this sense of responsibility for something you can't control that's just a you know a, a bag of anxiety right there isn't it so um yeah, mm. i mean it's just that's not really a top line that's a whole book in itself isn't it <laughs> but yeah I mean well it's su- it's such a vast question isn't it there is I guess I guess that's the thing there's no succinct answer is there yeah and and I I do worry for you know how that how that will play out for for kids in the future and um how that will turn up in services later on where where kids have been really mm. you know deeply affected but not been able to necessarily articulate it or you know it's taking years to sort of develop and into something that they'll they'll get support for later on um yeah it's huge i think that advice of being present and listening is is really powerful though because i've noticed working from home like some of my boundaries have spilled over where I'm on my phone more all the time because my phone is my work. My house is now my workplace. And my eldest child is like, you're always on your phone. Look at this. What, uh, look at my picture. What do, and then you realize actually, yeah, that's not normal. When, when I would go to London for work, I wouldn't be on my phone as much once I got home because I'd be like, right, I'm walking into the family home now, put the phone away. So I, I think being present is, is very 
good advice and, and something we probably all need reminding of daily. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I mean, I find the same as well, sort of working from home all the time and 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 that work being on social media, which sort of really invites you to and demands for you to be on it as much as possible, um, that, that actually then at what point do we stop and where do we put the boundaries in and it's really difficult and and because there's no kind of set guidelines or rules around you know it used to be you finish work at five or six and then you go home and then that's your time and and everything's sort mm-hmm. of filtering into everything else so um yeah but but children will inevitably um do what we do rather than what we say so um I tried to keep that in my mind a lot that whatever I'm doing that's not healthy my children will probably end up doing as well Mm, yeah that's so true that's a great reminder also so what about you you've you've written and published the book that's a major tick in life um do you think you'll write more books what do you think's next for you and what's your sort of hopes and dreams for the future you know I I I want to still be helpful to everybody. I want to still, I'm going to still put lots of content out and and I think I'm going to be doing some more longer form content where I can, again, you know, the book is about providing those details and those step-by-steps so that people can help themselves. But I think it would be nice to also offer some of that in not in person it's sort of but on video form so that I can do like longer videos on some of these subjects for people and put them on YouTube so that they're kind of you know accessible and um there's just and and the world of psychology is huge there's so much interesting research that comes out and it's just hidden in these journals and so I'd love to keep researching learning interesting stuff and then when I find something good sharing it and and you know letting people know how they can use it to their advantage in their own lives. Well, I'm really excited. I mean, I, I love what you do and I'm excited to see more and more. And I think just thank you. Thank you for being so open. Thank you for the book and, and thank you for everything you do online. Thanks so much. It's an absolute honour to meet you. It really is. Ah, well, you've been extraordinary, <laughs> just like the title suggests. So so thank you for coming on the pod as well. I know, I know everyone's going to love listening to this episode. It's going to be really helpful. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.